0: So, I hope, I hope you had a little time to let the emotion uh, sink in. I'd like to welcome the director of the film, one of the two directors, Hemal Trivedi. If you can come up, please give her a big hand. And one of the producers and the scriptwriter, Jonathan Goodman Levitt. Don't take attention. Yeah. (laughs) We're waiting for one more chair, but we'll start the conversation. Uh, Hey, Maul. There's there's so many questions on an emotional level and on many other levels, but the, the one that's really in front of my mind is, how did you win the trust of Maulana Aziz?
1: Uh, how, do, how did we win? Um, should I tell you the story of how this film came about and then win the trust? Yeah? Please do. Okay. Um, uh, thank you so much. We for can have the... a seat. Okay. So, um, uh, this, this project was born in uh, 2008, in November of 2008, when I lost a very dear friend in uh, Mumbai terror attacks. And I'm an Indian from Mumbai, and uh, when I lost this friend, uh, and I, I'm not not into politics that much, I don't, uh, it's not that I don't follow politics, but I don't pay t- that much attention to it, and uh, so when I lost a friend, at a very visceral level, I was very, I felt a lot of anger uh, towards Pakistan. Uh, historically, Indians and Pakistanis are enemies, and uh, so there is always a little bit of mistrust towards each other. And uh, when this happened, I just felt so much anger that I wanted to make sense of it. And I started digging deeper into what happened and why wh- Why what happened is what happened. And what I found out, <laughs> the flowers came.
0: That's a mystery guest, yes. <laughs> yes. But he's not gonna join the conversation, so that's fine. <laughs> Go ahead.
1: So, um, uh, what I found out was that uh, ordinary Pakistanis were, um, uh, you know, there was a fringe minority that was trying to take over the way of life of vast majority of Pakistanis, and their way of life was under attack, and attacks such as Mumbai terror attacks are almost, were almost happening on a monthly basis in Pakistan, and I wasn't, I wasn't even aware of it because it was never covered in media as much. And when I went through that realization, I, my anger turned into empathy, and I wanted to make a film about this ideological conflict in Pakistan so I went to Pakistan and uh, I filmed with a girl and a boy Zarina the girl and the boy the madrasa boy and uh, my intention was to make this film about these two students who have attended uh, different types of educational systems and how their education has made an impact on the way they see the world and how their ideologies are reflected. Uh, It was a pure uh, coincidence that uh, both these children happened to be from the Red Mosque. And I had no intention of making a film on the Red Mosque. So I actually Googled what Red Mosque was, and on Wikipedia I read about it, and I said, oh my God, this is really a scary place. And then I dig deeper, and then, you know, over over a period of time we realized that there is no way that uh, the two children's stories is gonna be enough to tell the complete story of the ideological conflict, and we needed to get into the lion's den. And that's when I collaborated. Uh, There was a problem of getting into the lion's den for me, personally, because I'm a Hindu, an Indian, and a woman. (laughs) But
2: otherwise,
1: no problem. So, uh, So I collaborated with this amazingly talented Pakistani filmmaker uh, who is not with me right now, Mohammed, and um, he, st- uh, he, in 2010, he secured first interview with Aziz, and slowly and steadily, he tried to gain access. It took him three years to actually get proper access to Aziz, and uh, the access to Aziz that we see in this film did not happen until 2013. And there were two things that helped with the access. Uh, One is, you know, we have an amazing co-producer, Sayyid Musharraf Shaha, who is a Pathan, who is a Pashtu. He's from the tribal belt. And half of his family is from Afghanistan and half is from Pakistan. And he made friends with uh, people in the mosque because they all speak the same language. Most of the people in the mosque, the the foot soldiers are Pashtus. in uh, in madrasas, uh, such as Red Mosque. And uh, so he made friends and then he made friends with the guards and then he made friends with the secretary of Aziz and that's how we slowly and steadily got into the inner circle. It became, it was almost a joke where Aziz actually once told him, asked him, you know, son, if you need a job, why don't you just talk to me? I'll give you a job, why are you hanging out with infidels? So that, that's how close uh, um, Musharraf got to him. And Muhammad, for Muhammad to get close to Aziz, the biggest thing was that he, uh, Muhammad is a Shia Muslim. Hmm. So uh, we used to joke that between me and Muhammad, they'll probably pick Muhammad first and kill him first. Uh, so, uh, but for Muhammad, you know, I think uh, what Muhammad did is he slowly and steadily uh, started listening to Aziz as if he's being proselytized. Mm-hmm. and being influenced by his ideology, and that's it, it happened, a ve- it took a very long time for him to gain that trust. So most of the, the best footage, uh, so the two children's stories were like almost finished by 2011, and uh, Aziz, the, mo- the best footage of Aziz we got in 13 and 14, and okay. now 15.
0: Okay, thank you very much. Jonathan, just a short question. You're, you're labeled as the script writer. I mean, this is a story that, that developed itself during the years, what kind of script do you write to such a story? Sure,
3: Um, well, thank you for the question. I mean, we we don't have it listed that way uh, (laughs) on the film. I mean, we have a written by credit. I think, I mean, in in general, it's more of a tribute to the fact that this was a very collaborative project that Hamel and I have been talking about since 2009, working on together for several years, along with Mo and our entire team, most of whom are Pakistani. Uh I think, you know, with a film like this, uh made over such a long period of time, it's written many times, um, both at the treatment stage yes. and then again and again in the edit. And Hamel's also the editor of the film, uh, and comes from an editing background, having edited a number of films that have been here at my favorite documentary <laughs> festival, uh, IDFA before, uh films that have won many awards, some wonderful work uh from the same region. And I, I think um, you know. I mean, I think that answers your question.
0: So it it, it underlines the fact that it's very much a team effort, yes. Uh, Professor Barber, um, a simple question. What have you seen?
2: Two things. In keeping with the other films we've been looking at, it's always the children who are the first to suffer, the first to be victims of what happens when they become adults, and then it happens again to the children. But in so many of the films we've seen and that we see, uh, the children are the first to be In Peshawar, the horrendous slaughter. We have a nice secular way of slaughtering our children in the United States, you know, by crazy people who go in and shoot people in the schools, not for religious reasons, but for, because they're presumably crazy. But it, and they have and guns. It, the ch- the, and, they have, and they have guns, but there are other ways uh, to do it. We, uh, we, we know there are many different ways to do it. So uh, you see again that children are at the heart of this story and always the first victims. But there's a politics here too, and before you jump to the conclusion that it's simple, because we know the politics, it's the politics of an Islamicist extremist mosque that teaches a terrible hijacked version uh, of Islam, which is the easy reading. You put wonderful hints in the film about other things that are there, just to complicate the story in your mind. Ronald Reagan, our president was there telling Folks, that he was going to arm the Taliban against our great then Satan enemy, the Soviet Union, and we actually created the Taliban. We armed them, we encouraged their ideology, we taught them how to fight, uh, we encouraged them to fight, and then when the Soviets were defeated and the Soviet Union fell, lo and behold, the new devils uh, were the United States uh, and often our training, our weapons that did it. But there are other complications too. The madrasas is you. This is the, the Red Mosque is one of many madrasas, but basically Pakistan doesn't really have a state school system. It has private school systems, and it has thirty thousand or forty thousand private madrasas. Many of which, though not as extreme as this, are in fact religiously inspired. A lot of them are paid for by our good friend and ally, Saudi Arabia. The money comes. It's they're Salafist. The money comes from Saudi Arabia. We arm the Sauds, and a lot of the money we pay them, give them with the arms and pay for the oil, ends up in Pakistan funding these madrassas. So, uh, and then of course, the Sunni issue comes in here. You talked about Shia, uh, and we know that the Sunnis in Iraq, who were kept out of the Shia regime that overthrew Saddam Hussein, and our left now in northern Syria and Iraq were looking for allies. And lo and behold, ISIS became an ally of the Sunnis against the Shia. So even there, we see, well, so here we have the Red Mosque and we have ISIS. We know who our enemies are. But very, very quickly, it gets a whole lot more complicated than that. And I think we need to understand these relationships. Finally, the little picture, you put a beautiful little picture in there that was what the jihadists hated. And there was a television set and there were various other uh, indications of modernity and Western technology and Western pornography and so on. But if you examine those closely, you'll find a lot of people in America and France and Holland who say, The culture represented in many of those items isn't a very good culture. It's not a culture we'd want to educate our children in. If the alternative to the Red Mosque extreme Islamicism is an education in pornography, in commercialism, in uh, the values of, say, Hollywood, it's not much of a choice. (laughs) And that's, I think, the issue that all of this sits in. I just want to put that on the table, because it's so easy in a film like this, and appropriate, to say that the ideology of the Red Mosque, the hijacking of Islam, that it represents, there's the problem. Close the mosque, and we've solved the problem. Well, you see what happens when you close the mosque? Uh, anything but a, anything but a solution. Any more than the bombing today, of Syria and Iraq, and of ISIS following the Paris massacre, is going to solve that problem. Hey, you have a reaction to this?
1: Um, you know, the one of the things that I had, I had realized was that. Uh, A war on terror, I I, I personally think that war on terror can never be won. Uh, It can only be diffused. And it can be diffused by empowering people such as Tariq. And, you know, the village chief in the film. And we need like, you know, Tariq is not, as an individual, Tariq is not a match to Aziz. He seems very weak, but he actually can take away the ammunition. Because I don't think anybody can change a fascist like Aziz and his state of mind. It is fixed and mm-hmm. that can never change. But if we put, uh, empower a lot of Tareks, then they will probably make him weaker. Hmm. And uh, that, that is just my hope.
0: Yeah, yeah. The but first. there is an element and that's, that's very much also in, in, in Professor Barber's book, Jihad versus McWorld, because people like him are abandoned by the government, aren't they?
1: Um, the people, people like him, are not abandoned by the government. They are ignored by the government.
0: Okay. Well, it's, it's a semantic <laughs> discussion, but <laughs>
1: yeah, no, no. In the sense that, in the sense that, it's not that the government doesn't have resources. Uh, Pakistani government has a lot of money, but a money, uh, the money is like misappropriated into uh, m- in mysterious uh, ways, which people don't know about. Uh, <laughs> And uh, so uh, the money is gone, and uh, you know, there's something, there's something like ghost schools, which are essentially a school that exists in pap- on paper. There's a building, there's a teacher, everything is there, but there is no real teacher, there's no real building. And such schools are so much in abundance. And so I think that people like Tariq are just not supported enough. Uh, even the school that we see in this uh, film is not supported by the government. It's actually supported by a nonprofit organization based out of LA. Uh, just information that uh, might be useful.
2: <laughs> and another thing, that you, oh, go ahead, please. No, you go. Oh, sure.
3: I I, um, I just wanted to amplify what Hamel was saying in response to the value judgment in a way that is the word ab- abandoned. Um, we both reacted strongly to that. I think in many ways. Uh, we're not journalists, we're not um, public figures, we're filmmakers. And you know, we made a film that seeks to allow other people to make their own judgments about what's going on in the region, and you know, I have to say it's a real honor to be here with you, Professor Barber, because finally um, we have answers to a lot of the questions at Q&As that we get ourselves to which we say, well, you know, we've spoken with the film. And uh, it's for you to do your own research because there are a lot of competing theories and statistics and facts out there. So, in many ways, this is a real honor. So, you know, that's all I want to add.
0: Unfortunately, I am a journalist,
2: so I use these <laughs> words. Uh,
0: <laughs> Professor Barber, your reaction to, to uh, well, well, th- 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 the th- position you. of the th- government th- in, in, yeah, and, in education? Yeah,
2: and here's one more uh, dirty secret of the Pakistani government in this conflict. The Pakistanis have one of the most powerful armies in the world. As you know, they have atomic weapons, they have an extraordinary intelligence service. It's not clear which side the intelligence service is always on when it comes to terrorism and so forth. We know that the Pakistani army uh, had a large camp right next to it where uh, uh, Osama bin Laden hid out for years and years, and they said, "Oh." We, we didn't know he was across the road. <laughs> Gee, I, that's what a surprise. I mean, uh, we, I, when,
1: I drove you know. by, I being, an, I being an Indian drove by Abbottabad once. And I didn't know, of course, but.
2: <laughs> but here's the other terrible secret. They have a force that if they took it to the Afghan border, they could defeat the uh, Afghans very quickly. The reality is that the greater part of the Pakistani army is stationed on the Indian frontier. awaiting some terrible conflict between India and Pakistan, they still see India as the greatest threat to their security. And the people who murder their children in schools, the Taliban and so forth on the other side, they pay relatively little attention to. So there's a lot of hypocrisy in the Pakistani government on these issues, which makes it even harder to deal with these horrors. And what we, we always see... The terrible, bloody edge of the conflict, in the victimization of children, in the murder of people, even in the uh, in, in the uh, in the attack on the mosque itself. What we don't see is the background, these complicated issues that, in so-called realpolitik and geopolitics, creates complications that mean that the governments, whether they're in Washington or in Islamabad, that claim to be fighting terrorism, are in many ways doing anything but.
0: Okay, I, th- I think uh, you, in your in inter-
2: introduction, you already mentioned that there is
0: a situation around the red mosque now, which is partly uh, causing the fact that your co-director Mohammed is not here. But I understood that you spoke to him and that he has a message for us. Shall we listen to it? Yep. Yes, please.
1: It's the voice of God. <laughs>
4: Thanks very much for watching our movie. I wish I could be there in Amsterdam with you, but a situation has developed back home that has prevented me from coming. Last Friday, Maulana Abdul Aziz rallied on the streets of Islamabad with thousands of his supporters to push for Sharia law in Pakistan. Aziz was already under surveillance earlier this year because of his activities in the aftermath of the Peshawar school attack, but also because his own students were reaching out to ISIS to come to Pakistan and pursue their own activities of implementing Sharia law. As such, he was under warning from the government that should Aziz pursue these activities, he would be put behind bars and be tried for new terrorism charges. And just this last Friday, Aziz has ignored all these warnings and has taken to the streets. Mosques and madrasas who are in support of Aziz have also taken to the streets and have put out protests in support of Aziz's mission. In response, a heavy contingent of police had been deployed in the areas surrounding the Red Mosque. However, at this point, the government has been unsuccessful to calm down and keep Aziz quiet. The Pakistani state has issued one more warning to Aziz that if he comes forward to deliver his hate speech during the Friday sermon tomorrow, the government has promised to jail him. In response, there could be a huge backlash by his supporters. Aziz has already directly targeted the media in his new campaign. As such, we had already received threats a few months back in response to this movie. And at this point, I've had to move homes in Pakistan, and so has our co-producer, Musharraf. We have to put in place several safeguards to ensure security for our crew, our subjects, and our families. With the current situation, I cannot participate at ITFA, unfortunately. I have to respond to any changes on ground at a moment's notice. Our hope is that the situation stabilizes soon. Thank you.
0: That is, that is an incredible development, of course. Um, <clears throat> one of the questions that comes to mind is, did Mr. Aziz already see the film?
1: Um, Aziz has seen uh, all all the sections that he is featured in the film. He hasn't seen the entire film uh, played out in the context of the ideological conflict. Uh, we showed him uh, the his sections, and we also filmed him watching the film, just in case he forgets. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so... You know, uh, so and he he loved it. He kept saying mashallah all the time. So Aziz is on board of what is being shown here and the way he's portrayed. He's not shying away from uh, his beliefs and uh, he's upfront and he says the same things in uh, Pakistani media as well. So, uh, but you know, I just think, I just think that in the context of the entire film, it's uh, we are a little scared about how he's going to perceive it, although. Uh, uh, my, uh, my co-producer, Musharraf, thinks that Aziz is going to love the film. So what I'm do you hoping think, Jonathan?
0: What do you think?
3: What do I think I, I hope what Hamil just said is right, and that he loves the film. I mean, he wasn't kept in the dark about yeah. you know the rest of what we were doing in terms of making the film. And I think, um, really, he um, is given his best argument in the film. We're not doing some sort of takedown, of what he believes. We're allowing him to speak and uh, explain why he believes what he believes. And, you know, hopefully he will feel the same way when he sees that in the context of the whole film, just as he felt, as Hamill said, when he saw his scenes.
2: If, If I can disagree with both of you and say that if he loves the film, he hasn't seen the film. That is to say, he hasn't looked at it. Of course, he has seen himself portrayed and saying what he believes. Uh, But the beliefs themselves are perverse and distorted, and the consequences of those beliefs in the world are very evident in the film. And to the extent they are meaningless to him, it's because simply he believes deeply in his own ideology and sees nothing else. And here, a tribute to filmmakers and to you, and to the dangers you put yourself in, you try to put a lens to the world and simply see it. And I agree, you did not try to belittle or demean him at all, you showed him. But sometimes when you show the truth about fanatics, that's much more devastating than an attempt to simply p- paint them in pretty pretty colors. And I think this was a deeply honest film in its effect on, uh, on girls and in that part of the world and on children. There's a wonderful film from a couple of years ago called Girl Rising about young women in the third world who are prevented from being educated. Uh, And this was a small instance uh, in her case of a girl who was married off and who was obviously loving school and preventing from having that. So the film as a whole, and films have to be seen as a whole, is a deeply honest portrait which he can only live and like by being utterly blind to what's in front of him. I think. But but wouldn't you say, Professor
3: Barber, that um, if you are somebody who believes what Aziz believes, that you can have another reading of that film? I mean, we're sitting here in Amsterdam. Uh, You and I are from the New York area. Hamel's uh, from India. I mean, we grew up in democracies. I think that our reading and the context we bring to it is quite different. I mean, maybe that's a majority context worldwide, but I think there are a lot of people who would see the film differently and choose to see it differently because of where they're coming from.
2: Yes, to a point, but this is not Islam being seen by us seculars who don't really get it. And on the contrary, I wrote a book about the character of Western values that I think in many ways deserves the condemnation of a lot of people who condemn it. I'm not a fan of big world. I'm not a fan of Hollywood. I'm not a fan of many of our commercial values and so on. But my problem for him is not that, or his not caring for those. My problem is I don't think he begins to understand Islam or the Koran. That is to say, he's hijacked that religion. We see it when a young man comes out and reads powerfully and passionately and then is asked, so what does that mean? He said, we have no idea what it means. Mm-hmm. We have, because we, 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 because you know, we're not taught its meaning, we're taught to recite it. Now, I've talked to Iman's... I've talked to Muslims all over the world. I've never met a serious Muslim, a serious Amman who says, our job is to teach children to recite it, but we don't want them to understand what's in it. And there's a good reason why, in fact, extremists can't, because when you read the Koran, as when you read the Old Testament or the New Testament, or you read other religious works, you read works that are about love, that are about family, and that's the quran is also about those things the distinction by the way between the quran and what's the hadith the sayings associated with it from which a couple readings came in that are deep and clear but these but but the great wonderful thing about christianity judaism and uh, islam in their pure forms is that they are cousin religions they are abrahamic religions and their ultimate preaching is a preaching of love and fraternity, and that's true of Islam. So when somebody tells me something else, I'm sorry, I don't believe it, and I know he okay. believes it, and he'll like it. Sure, but I, I, think I mean, I,
3: I agree with everything yeah. you just yeah. said, and I think personally that's the case. But, uh, but I also would say, and, and probably Islamic scholars might, would agree, but um, you know, there are other people who take a different view. Yeah, okay,
0: I, wa- I want to stop you here because we don't have very much time left, and I do want to give the audience the chance to uh, throw in some questions. Over there, please, wait for the mic if you can.
3: Thank you very much uh, for this courageous film. Um, I, I, I just have a question. We, we, we heard uh, the idea that this is about the politics, but isn't it about the ec- economics? Uh, your film seems to suggest, uh, and I know we can all read it in the way we uh, we wanted, but for me, it's really about the politics. When we actually see a father you know, having to take the decision, am I going to pr- send my kid to you know the government school uh, or to the madrasa, he says, well, <laughs> to the government school, you know, you, well, which isn't a government school, well, government. sorry. Um, you don't have the money to support us, the other school has.
1: So what about the economics of it all?
0: And if you see the malnutrition on the skins of the boys, yes. Yeah.
1: Um, you know, uh, I've thought a lot about economics, and, you know, if you have to look at the subcontinent, uh, Pakistan is poor, but so is India, so is Bangladesh, Sri Lanka, Nepal, uh it's a very poor region of the world. The entire subcontinent is poor. Uh, Pakistan in particular, you know, and you uh, you will find even people in India having similar situations where uh, the father would say, oh, I don't have money to send you to school, but the person would become a day laborer. Now, in Pakistan especially, what has happened is that there is a political... Uh, motive, motiva- there are the motivated politicians who have used the economy, the opportunities pre- uh, presented by the e- economic deprivation of the people, and you have chosen to use them as cannon fodder. So it is about yes, it's about economics, but economics is more like a soil. It's, it's a fertile soil to give rise to this. But uh, this this would have not happened without people like Aziz and without the geopolitical things that. Uh, he mentioned so.
2: I think we can add to that patriarchy. These are patriarchal cultures, and that's also true in yeah. India as well. And in the, a lot of this is an overlay, perhaps a bit invisible, of patriarchy because the marrying off wasn't just about economics because better off families could do that as well for the dowry and so forth. It wasn't just about money yeah. and the absence of state school. So the cultural element and the deep demeaning all over the world and still even in the West, of women, and the lack of equal opportunity, the lack of equal pay, the lack of equal education is a powerful, powerful problem. And that's not just about Islam. I don't know if you, those of you who were here this morning for the dibuk, noticed that the, who saw the dibuk this morning? Anyone was here? Hasidic Jews who went to Ukraine to celebrate when they performed their ritualistic, they brought women with them, but when they performed their ceremonies and rituals, it was men only. Men only. That's Judaism, <laughs> Orthodox Judaism we're talking about. So, patriarchy and the continued absence of equality, not just for women, but particularly for girls, and in education is a powerful sub motif here. Okay,
0: any other questions? Yeah, a lot. Uh, we don't have very much time left, but we're going to try our best. Yeah, the, uh, over there in the orange sweater.
4: Yes, thank you for the movie. Uh, <laughs> What I found interesting was there's also the aspect of uh, a kind of non-ideology on the other side. And by by that I mean when uh, Aziz talks about lawlessness, he says, first of all, he stepped into a vacuum uh, created by corruption, by other governments who couldn't do the job. But secondly, uh, when his own father was killed, there was no justice for him. So... It's almost uh, a, a traumatic experience, you could say. Uh, but there was no. So how can he ever believe in the values of the other side if the other side constantly switches their values to uh, as an opportunistic means to 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 their own gains? Very so good. Very good point. Thank you.
1: Um, <laughs> uh, I think that uh, you know that's a very I, that's that's the very valid reason. In fact, people like Aziz, uh, fascists in general, find. Uh, lack of like he professor uh, was talking about how ISIS perpetuated because of lack of uh, civil society mem- you know like civilian society and civilian democracy thriving so i think these people do thrive in a uh, vacuum and for aziz personally you know aziz i made a lot of attempt like for us it was very important that we empathize with aziz as well because you have to understand this guy he was never he's never stepped out of madrasa he was born in a madrasa he was raised in a madrasa his father was a very uh, radical cleric and um, he lost his father his father actually died right in front of him so for him it's a story of vengeance also and uh, you know that's why we deci- we uh, it, it took a lot of effort to empathize with him, otherwise there would have not been any conversation. But yes, I, I think that Aziz, he, eh, Aziz at one at one point of time was probably a victim of the system, but I don't see him as a victim of the system anymore. I think he is taking full advantage and he f- is fully aware of what he's doing and he stepped on the other side where he's become an exploiter.
2: But just quickly, you're so right, the appeal to law, And justice and we see justice blindfolded in the statues and so on but in fact in so many societies it's peering out of one eye (laughs) you know and looking at who it's applying its laws to black lives matter in the United States is a movement about what is supposed to be the law being applied to black people when they're captured or arrested and so forth who are in effect murdered by policemen in the name of the law They're supposed to be the lawless ones, but it's the law that is lawless. So those hypocrisies make it much easier for people to become angry and resentful and hateful and then use violence themselves. That's not a justification for violence, but it helps us understand maybe why the appeal to law and law-abiding citizens doesn't work when it is applied so blindly, so partially, so unfairly to minorities and others in a society. Laura,
0: can I take one more question? One more, okay. Yes. Who has the most poignant question?
1: I, I hope so. In, Where uh, are you? I'm uh, sorry? Here.
0: Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah.
1: Hi. In uh, 2001, shortly after 9-11, I visited the Red Mosque in Pakistan and then it was already clear that it was pretty radical. It only took to 2007 that they closed it and I was really surprised that it, that it was open again. And I don't understand why they close, open, close it. Do you know more about it? How, how does it work? Um, you know, I, I, think, I think he mentioned about, you know, how Pakistani government had this uh, love and hate relationship with its madrasas. Uh, and what had happened is, you know, for the longest time, uh, madrasas such as uh, institutions such as Red Mosque were used by Pakistani government for political purposes. It's just that after 9-11, you know, George Bush said that you are either with us or, you know, we'll bomb you to the Stone Age that Pakistani government started taking these madrasas head on. And uh, there was this famous article, uh, there was this famous speech by some cleric, and I forgot the name of the cleric, who said that, oh, you're messing with us? We're gonna make sure we're gonna turn your country into Kashmir. And uh, that's exactly what happened. You know, that when, when uh, these madrasas started turning, um, you know, started attacking Pakistani civilian society, that's when the government actually got really scared. Now, you have to understand that Red Mosque is a government-funded mosque. It, fu- it was founded by the government, and for the longest time, um, all the clerics of the Red Mosque were on government payroll. And even today, although officially Aziz is uh, dismissed from the Red Mosque as a head cleric, Aziz continues to be the Red- head cleric, but there is another symbolic head cleric of Red Mosque which nobody talks about. He's just a puppet cleric. So, and uh, he is uh, funded by the government, he's on a government payroll. So, and this mosque is right in the middle of Islamabad and they have 10,000 students. And any government who is, um, and and right next to uh, Red Mosque is the army headquarters and the the other side is ISI, which is the intelligence agency. So it's a very, very uh, conveniently situated mosque and uh, at uh, you know aziz can get up to 10000 students on the street of islamabad protesting and no government wants that chaos because otherwise the government will, will be toppled so that's how it is that's 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 why government is really scared of uh, people like red mosque
2: really. and come full circle to where we started a powerful patriarchal monarchy that beheads dozens of people as ordinary punishment every year it's not isis it's the Salafists, Sunnis in Saudi Arabia, whose money went originally and earlier to Al-Qaeda and whose money, much of it still goes to the madrasas, which is a Western ally, an American ally. It's Sunni, and this we also want to forget that everything that happens around Islam is in the context of a long, terrible struggle between Sunni and Shia, who, like Protestants and Catholics, can get along, but also, like Protestants and Catholics, who are very good at slaughtering one another, as we were not so long ago on this continent. So we want to remember again those complications, and as we talk about the Red Mosque, it is an official state mosque, funded in part by our ally Saudi Arabia, in the name of a Salafist extremist Sunni ideology, which is why Iran is the enemy Uh, of all of these things, even though Iran is our enemy, but it's Shia, and it is also the enemy of the Sunnis. So it's a complicated world, folks, and until we understand that world, we won't begin to be able to deal with the political and economic ramifications.
0: I think we made an effort. (coughs) Thank you very much. (laughs) Hemal, Jonathan, Benjamin Barber. Thank you very much.